0: Welcome to On The Block with Richard Stone. Richard is a 40-something construction company owner based in the UK. His passions are technology, business automation, customer experience and helping other small business owners using his own valuable life and business experience. This podcast will be a mixture of solo spots, casual conversation, as well as inspirational key people of influence from their respective fields. Make yourself comfortable and enjoy listening. Here is your host, Richard Stone.
1: Let's get started. Right, so good afternoon and welcome to Richard Banyard from Optech, which is a specialist in making businesses efficient through business automation, through software and software
2: and hardware to a degree, is it? Yeah, to a degree. Um, we're software specialists, but we, um, yeah, the, the nature of the work means the hardware and software are tightly integrated. So that often falls into our scope as well.
1: Okay. So your, your typical kinds of projects are sort of with, with larger kind of manufacturing businesses. Would that be fair to say? Richard?
2: Yeah, that's right. We, we largely serve the process industries and manufacturers. So that could be people who generate power, manufacture chemicals on a large scale, um, you know uh, tissue manufacturers um, that sort of company so yeah they generally have large process plant that's operating 24 hours or close to and uh, we help them keep that process running essentially uh, through control and automation solutions uh, and loo roll as well I think do I remember from a call oh. from- that, yeah, that's the, that's the tissue. So it's a bit of a uh, <laughs> polite way of saying, uh, yeah. You know, uh, me. They I'll also call themselves up. producers of hygiene products, but um, producers yeah, of it's, hygiene. It's it's um, toilet roll to the rest of them. That
1: sounds somewhat like calling a bricklayer a trowel engineer.
2: <laughs> yeah, about that.
1: <laughs> so so we we first met sort of, probably a little over over a year ago in a in a uh, mastermind group that we're both in. Um, so we've we've sort of shared some some different kind of sort of peaks and troughs of not just our own business sort of wins and sort of euphoric moments and, and also struggles, but those are some of the others that are in the group as well. So we've, we've sort of been on quite a journey together, really. Um, and I kind of almost feel like I know you extremely well, but the, 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 the listeners won't know you so well. Um, so I've, we've got some sort of questions that we, tip, we typically ask all of our guests um, so that people can kind of build up a little bit of an audio rapport with you. if we start with some of them first, so I'm probably assuming you didn't want to go into business automation as a five-year-old child. So what was it that you actually thought about doing? What was the first sort of job that you ever thought about?
2: Um, I don't know if I was five, probably a bit older, but architecture appealed to me, actually. Um, I've always been quite into aesthetics um, and obviously wandering around your environment as a child. um, You see a lot of buildings, you go into a lot of rooms. And the whole kind of design of spaces uh, did fascinate me for quite a while. Um, Then I um, I found out how long the training was um, and looked for a few other options. Settled on accountancy as a good uh, as a good uh, good one because uh, a few people assured me that'd be the way to get rich quick. Um, Now I'm glad I didn't take that route either, of course. But yeah, Um, so yeah, I went first for the um, the the dream, uh, then the hard numbers, and I've settled somewhere in the middle, probably.
1: Ah, okay. That's quite an, quite an interesting change because architecture is very much about actually how things look, and it's very visual, isn't it? As opposed to actually sort of software and accounting, which is very much kind of in the traditional sense, probably before before it became softer in the last sort of few years. It was very much kind of numbers, spreadsheets, graphs, forecasting, sort of documents. So, interesting an interesting change. So. Yeah. So we know what you do as a business. What do you do to get away from business? What's your favourite pastime or hobby? Uh,
2: probably my favourite pastime is riding a single-speed mountain bike. Um, but I also like running in the hills as well.
1: So single, where I live in the... A single-speed yeah. mountain bike. Wow, that must, be, that must be... I mean, I see them this, when I'm in London, like looking at jobs and sort of supervising jobs and stuff. We see them quite a lot. There's a lot of single-speed bikes around London. But, but where you live in Derbyshire, that must be quite challenging, I would imagine, isn't it? Riding a single-speed bike.
2: Yeah, well, um, I like to think it makes some things easier, but it's a bit of a niche activity. Certainly, um, I know a few, probably two or three others that do it in my area, um, but most people do have a lot more gears than that. Yes. What's um, the advantage of having only one gear? Um, well, the way I see it is, um, you know, I'm a grown man, uh, and I spend hours, sometimes longer, you know, days of the week, um, basically riding a bike up and down hills to go wee, essentially. Um, so the whole activity is a bit inane anyway. Um, so yeah, if you're not careful, you end up spending a lot of money and having a very sophisticated machine just to ride between trees as fast as you can and hope not to hit them. So I, I essentially, it just helps me. It simplifies the process a bit. You know, I ride my bike to relax, switch off and, uh, you know, remove myself from the stresses of mechanical things that don't work all the time and that sort of thing. So a single speed mountain bike keeps it simple. It is slightly harder work up the hills, but yeah, it's 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 worth the effort when you get to the top. So uh, yeah, it's.
1: uh, I like that. I can, you know, I'm a big advocate of the Kiss principle. I was taught it many, many years ago by a really good mentor of mine, and it's always stuck and it's always served me really well. So, I totally get, I totally get why you would, uh, why you would want to subscribe to that, given the complexity of some of the stuff that you do on a day-to-day basis. So, so single-speed mountain bikes. There we go. So. Dinner with a famous person, who would it be, where would you go, and
2: what would you eat? Oh, blimey. You know, I've not been asked this question ever before. Um, I'll have to have a, just a quick think. I think um, it's a bit of a cliche, but when I was younger, uh, I looked up to Richard Branson. I even drafted him a letter. Um, and I know he's not everyone's favourite person. Um, but one thing I greatly admire about him is he's never let his work compromise his lifestyle. So I think a good chat to him. Um, I don't know if he'd enjoy it but my favourite food is a burger um, and I'd probably just go to some swish uh, fancy upmarket burger place if such a place exists and um, yeah, drink IPA, have a burger with Richard Branson. Get a
1: Wagyu beef burger. I took some clients there. So um, uh, where did we go? I went with Mr. Sando, good mate of mine. Uh, what was it called? STK. Wow. That is, yeah, that is, if you've not had Wagyu beef burgers, you've got to get on that. They are absolutely out of this world.
2: I will, I will make a note now. Yeah, they <laughs> are like
1: mate, you will never look at another burger the same again. Trust me, they are. Good. Yeah, really, Wagyu beef is like phenomenal. Yeah. So, so, what advice, if you could give you advice to your twenty-year-old self, what would be the one thing that you would say?
2: I think um, get out your own way. Uh, it's what I often say, um, because, you know, a lot of the time, especially when I was younger, I worried a bit too much about, um, well, what other people perceived of me, of course, as probably most of us do. Um, but also I had I had an expectation of what I needed to do um, based on, how, you know, prior experience, my upbringing and things like that. Um, and a lot of the time that serves us well. Um, but in a few instances, it really hasn't. And I've hit some dead ends Uh, let's say, because I followed a path that wasn't really what I, if I was true to myself, I I would have, um, I would have chosen. Um, And I think, I think the same advice can be true of, of, of once you've got the business, you're up and running. I'm, you know, a technical guy. I like getting involved in the detail. Uh, You know, I'm as comfortable coding a website as I am, you know, uh, going and doing the day job. So um, I often try and do it all myself. And that's one of my great failings still, uh, but I am getting better at that. So I good think advice. that's, it's one of the crucial things. I think. Yeah, good advice. It's,
1: it's something that I um, put on one of the obstacles. I don't know if you were there um, a while back. I, um, I We've got an office at home and I was sitting in the office upstairs at home and I was on the obstacle and there's know, there was eight or 10 people in this room. And one of the guys was, was just blatantly in his own way. You could just see He was like, in his own way. And, I sort of called him out on it because that's part of the benefit of being in a mastermind group. And um, he was like, he wasn't very accepting of it. And I I sort of got a bit firmer. And he was like, hmm. And then I got a bit firmer. And in the end, I was like, get the fuck out of your own way. And um, it was quite funny because when we'd finished the call, my wife came upstairs and she was like, who are you just talking to? And I told him, you can't speak to people like that. I said, no, trust me, that's what he needed. She was like... If one of your coaching clients actually asked you that, I'd be aghast if you spoke to them like that. You can't talk to people like that. I said my, sometimes people need—that's what people need sometimes. Sometimes people just need to be told, and it's the one. It's not well, there's not much that we don't agree on. But that was one of the things that she was like. I think you ought to probably have toned it down a little bit. So I would say it's extremely good advice for some people and very poignant for people at certain points. Um, and, not, and not just when they're young either and you know when people are in business sometimes especially people that are starting off on their own and growing and growing a business and then looking to sort of scale it quite often they are the bottleneck and it, 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 it's very difficult to actually see that when you're in it yourself I've been it I've been the bottleneck um, mm. of many Maybe different definitely. brands Corona <laughs> <laughs> Australia I've been all sorts of bottlenecks in my time yeah. um, but so yeah that's a really great tip so and you
2: see in these growth curves of companies, you know, often you know people reach a ceiling of complexity or whatever lingo you want to give it. But ultimately, it's the business owner, and they need to release something. They need to outsource or they need to let go of a particular responsibility. To yeah, to massively.
1: To I was involved in a conversation on LinkedIn, either yesterday or last night. I can't remember. And some a guy, a guy had got a business. It was doing about ten million, um, and he decided to bring in an, an MD. Um, and he, was, he wasn't he was going to sort of step into some great, grandiose chief operating officer or some other self-appointed title. Um, he was just going to step aside. And mm. literally, just, he was just going to be, stay as the director, but he's going to bring this guy as MD. And there was loads of people, and it was, like, it was quite a popular post. There was like hundreds of comments on it, and people saying, you're mad, what are you doing? You shouldn't be doing that. And people were, were getting quite sort of harsh with some of the criticism. And firstly, I just found it astonishing because none of them know any of the reality, so they're not entitled to or qualified to have an opinion. But actually, I thought, Do you know what? Fair play to you, mate, because what you've done is recognise that actually your skill set's great and it's got you to where you want to go, but where you need to go next, you actually need the skill set that you don't currently have. So while you're busy acquiring it, bring someone in who's got it. What an absolute legend move. Yeah, And I just found it staggering that, And some of the comments were from people running big businesses, like seriously, like big businesses that are floated. You just think, wow, "Wow, that is actually staggering that you're giving out such shit advice to people because why would you not do that? Actually, I think that hats off to you for doing it.
2: Yeah, totally, totally. And, you know, a lot of the time, you know, you say they're in big businesses and things, they've got that support structure. So Mm. they've never maybe had to make that decision if they've come through the ranks a little bit. Mm. So... uh, one bit of advice someone gave me, um, because um, well, I know we both deal with big businesses, um, just talking about it earlier, um, is you know, a lot of the people that have got pretty high profile positions in, in large organizations, they've not been through the same journey you have. Um and that's quite right. They've always had this support network potentially around mm. them. So they have avoided some of this stuff. Yeah,
1: it's fascinating actually. Matthew sid talks about it in his book Rebel Ideas about diversity. Mm. Uh, and it's not just about diversity of race or colour or creed. It's about actually educational educational diversity. It's about upbringing diversity, schooling diversity, because schooling and education don't necessarily, they're not necessarily the same thing. And actually, to have a diversity in career path, actually, people can add tremendous value. It's why there's such a big rise in non-exec roles that people are looking to sort of bolster balls with, because what they recognise is they want to have, rather than just having a skills-based board, what they want is a diverse board that's actually got people from all sorts of backgrounds. I mean, I remember 15 years ago, probably, a lot of we did a lot of work in social housing. A lot of clients there actually were were coming under quite a lot of pressure. I don't think it was a conscious choice. It was more of a pressured decision um, to engage with residents and leaseholders and to actually give them a seat on the board. And some of the changes that were made as a result of that were absolutely brilliant really mm. really good and that's that's a, a you know a really early example of people sort of wanting to sort of promote diversity across the boards of businesses and, and that's what you need because you know it, it's a very diverse world out there and everybody and every every you know we all need to be represented and the better balance we've got the far better decision you're going to make they might not want to do the right decision but they'll certainly be far more balanced
2: no totally and i think we're all responsible kind of guilty of groupthink a lot of the time and you yeah. tend to do, you know, business with people who are like you, you tend to yep. employ people who are like you and it's all too easy often, isn't it?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a chapter actually, a really fascinating chapter in that book about actually some of the failings of the CIA with the, um, which is quite poignant because it was a couple of days ago, the 9-11 bombings and how much, how much information they actually had, but how blinded they were to some of the information that they were privy to before those awful horrific events happened because of their own conscious and unconscious bias. Mm. You know, if you didn't wear a white shirt, have chinos, and I think it was it was either Yale or Harvard, I can't remember, but essentially, if you didn't tip those three boxes, you was not getting a job at the CIA. Well, what it ended up, they ended up with this humongous, grave. rather than an elephant in the room, the boards were the elephant, and the rest of the space was actually the elephant. And it was a it was a, an unconscious bias, of actually they didn't believe that these the kinds of things could ever happen. And, Lo and behold, unfortunately, they did. So there's, there are some horrific real-world examples of where people aren't in tune to that, of where things go horribly wrong. Definitely, yeah. So, that's massive. So what's a typical day look like for somebody that's involved in business automation? Because I, I understand it at a low level in terms of sort of integrating calendars with diaries and automating your accounts through zero, but that's a whole different level to the sort of stuff you do. So what's, what's the Because t- the way you do is project-based, isn't it?
2: Yeah, and if you think about an organization uh, like a manufacturer or one of the kind of industrial clients I've described, um, we break their, their kind of business systems into two. So you'll be familiar with the term IT, information technology, mm-hmm. and that's the sort of systems you're talking about, the calendars, the emails, the accounting software, the CRM probably, um, ERP systems, so the likes of SAP. Um, what I deal with primarily is the operational technology that's all the hardware and software that keeps the actual process running so we're turning on and off pumps closing valves we're actually pumping product through lines right okay so, it, so it's moving product rather than moving information
1: in whatever guise it might be in terms of business systems.
2: Exactly. But then now, of course, the, the biggest advantages uh, are available to the companies that integrate the two worlds. So, you know, when your customer places an order on the website, automatically that's passing a, an order down to the shop floor without any human involvement. And likewise, as the goods are shipped out the door. The relevant information is passed back up to the business systems and then you know the invoice is sent out or whatever um, so more and more it's about integrating all these systems so it is passing data but that data is related to kind of physical things if you like for me mm. um, so what's the normal day look like it's it, it's pretty varied um, you know sometimes i'm in my home office like now uh, other times I'm, you know, wearing jeans and a t-shirt, scrambling around in muddy cupboards and cabinets, um, pulling cables and, um, and wiring things up, uh, trying to fault find and things like that. So it, it can be a bit of everything. And that's one of the reasons that uh, I'm still doing the job, actually, and why I came into it is because of the variety of processes you see. Um, you know, it's fascinating to see some of these plants. Um, Another big part of my day is driving around, of course, but I won't talk too much about that because it's not very exciting. But um, yeah, the, the, <laughs> traveling um, the length and breadth of the country. Exactly. Yes. Yes. But when you get there and you you know you, you're getting things working again, or you're helping, you know, un- unlock some value for the customer. You know, they've got a new capability on their plant or what have you, um, or you're you improving some uh, some process, and that's when the, the rewards come, and that's that's the, the good bit.
1: So do you actually sit down with people and actually look at at and map out their process or is that already done and you just have a look at it overall and say, well, actually, if we we could automate certain parts of it, where does your involvement and where's the kind of ideal point for you to actually start? Because presumably that must, depending on where you get involved, must affect the potential value that you can add.
2: Yeah, and that's a great question. So uh, different organisations I deal with have different amounts of expertise in-house already. Um, So some will have a dedicated uh, engineering team um, that look after all the control technology already. And in that case, they generally give us pretty well-defined specifications um, and we work to those. We'll often um, be more expert in the technology and they'll be more expert in their process. So there'll be some collaboration around that. Um, but then we've got other clients where you know, either they, they, they're, they're not the size or they've never had that engineering capability. And then we really are you know an, an outsourced engineering function for them and we're getting involved with management discussions around strategy around the life cycle of the plant and you know how we best kind of invest in automation in a targeted way to give them the best return um and that's the you know those sort of discussions are what i'm I, you know that's the, the nice bit for me and that's where we can really help people because um a lot of the decisions um you make in. in in buying this equipment you know the equipment's going to be installed for potentially 30 years um so if, if you don't make the right specification decisions uh, make sure it's compatible with the right things and meets your needs now you know you're living with that asset for quite a long time um and you're not gonna be able to necessarily afford to replace it before it's um it's due for uh kind of replacement anyway so yeah that's 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 where we uh can really help i think
1: And potentially, if you do get that wrong, then actually you've got 30 years of pain of walking past that piece of plant every day thinking, well, if only we'd done this or if if we'd done that. I mean, it's that whole world. I mean, I was the whole business automation world, it was quite interesting because I'd actually forgotten about it. But I was first introduced to it probably 10 years ago when we first looked at sort of doing partnering arrangements with clients. And it was about moving. It wasn't moving a product. It was moving data. So a lot of the clients we worked with were big house social housing providers, um, and they've got housing management softwares like Orchard and others, and it's moved on. But there's there's probably at least half a dozen different products that that sit out there, and essentially they they hold databases of property information. And what we needed to do was work out how we could actually make the systems that we ran building companies with talk to the outputs that these clients put out in terms of whether it's a repairs order for to go and fix the tap at 22 doorknob close, or whether it's to a tender for going for a piece of major works projects. And we ended up having to get things like APIs written. And this was probably 12 to 15 years ago, actually. And I'd never heard of it, you know, we got sent a set of contract documents and someone said, right, go and do that building. That was how, that was how the world worked. So the minute we started looking at this kind of alternative work stream of social housing work, and actually all of a sudden, all this stuff needed to be able to sort of link together and actually to talk and share information. It was like a, a whole new world. And I'll never forget sitting talking to a big manager um, for a client that I was doing some management consulting with and sitting talking to them about actually how their tender was made up. And he was, we, was, we were having quite a frank conversation about what was good about their tender and what wasn't. And one of the things that he said was that actually they were concerned because they'd not got any money in for data integration. And I, I just looked, and I was like, data integration. Was, what was it? That, that, you have got a thousand kitchens today. What are you talking about data integration? <laughs> and it transpired that in the ERs for this project at low price, there was 40 or 40 or near almost 50 pages that was basically a specification for how this data was going to come out of this client's come basically come down a wire out yeah. of the client's building to to this contractor. And how they they'd got to be able to deal with it. And I said to him, when you're talking about there's a risk because of allowances, what, how much a risk are you talking about? And he said, well, he said, I don't know. He said, but but we've had one conversation with a provider and they want 50 grand to talk to. <laughs> and I said, okay, that's, that's quite a sizable hole. And I said, well, did, did nobody sort of pick this up? Was there not like a technical review of the ERs when the bid landed? And somebody said, well, hold on a minute. You know, in the same way that you'd look at the contingency and say, well, okay, A54 there's a 200 grand contingency, bang that in the premiums. That document tells you what you need to be pricing for. And he said, yeah, but nobody knew. And we were too scared to ask the client, so we didn't put anything in for it because we didn't know what to allow. We just thought, oh, we might have to buy a couple of computers. (laughs) Yeah. So literally, they thought they were buying a couple of computers and, you know, it's like three, four grand because at the time computers were sort of two grand. Yeah. And actually, what it meant was that they were up on offer for... The writing, and they, they had to completely provide a fully functioning system that would integrate. It had to integrate, and it had to exchange information. It was weird. It was like every five and a half or six, I can't remember. It, was like, it wasn't like every 10 minutes or 15 minutes, like a quarter of an hour. It was a weird time scale and it was to do mm. with the way that the priorities worked um, for the different repair categories, because some of them were like four-hour repairs and stuff. And I'll never forget that conversation and the look on this guy's face when he, and I said to him afterwards, I said, who else knows about this? And he was like, you're the only person I've told. I said, that's really funny. I said, because you've actually changed colour. And he said, <laughs> you what? I said, and you're actually a lot calmer. You seem to have like, your shoulders have gone down. You're more relaxed. He said, do you know the weight that I've been carrying around with, the, knowing that, that we've like not priced this one thing? Because it, it wasn't about the money. It was the fact that somebody would get a, get a bollocking for, for missing one item out. It wasn't, because nobody knew at the time how big the, this, this could potentially be because they just didn't know what they were pricing. So, it's, yeah, it's data integration is a whole different world. I mean, it, it's now come down massively in price, but I know from, from some work I did about 18 months, two years ago, that it's still, you know, you can still easily spend 15, 20 grand to get an API written, to to get two different housing management softwares to
2: talk. Yeah, of course, and it's very labor intensive, and that, you know, people often forget some of this setting up costs, you know, Mm. everyone's excited about automation, and, um, you know, automating tasks away at the moment, but, you know, there's a lot of work, and the specifying of it up front, of course, is so Mm. important, because you're making that investment, and it's so easy to forget something in the initial scoping, and then, you know, you're paying a price for years.
1: It's even stuff. I mean, I'm, I remember sitting in a big meeting out on the coast, talking to a client about we were being tendered, we were being interviewed after submission. It was like a competitive dialogue arrangement. So you you submit a tender, then you go for an interview, and then you submit a lot of backfire, best and final offer. And we were sitting in this interview, and there was there were some people there from from the client's IT department, and the company that I worked for had an outsourced um like resource management software called One Surf, which is an absolutely fantastic product. If you're in field management, it is like up there. It was it was purpose written for the old Connell business. Um, and the, one of the guys, the guy, I think it was a guy that wrote it um, when he when he sort of left Connell because they went bust. Um, he sort of bought the put his house on offer and did a deal and bought the software, and then has since sold it back into various other different providers. And it's an amazing bit of kit. And we had a couple of people from that business talking to the client. And it was the rest of the big team was just sitting there thinking they might as well be talking Swahili because <laughs> I really knew like what this conversation was. And then talking about programming languages and different sort of, like, the word CAN bus must have got used about 20 different times. I've no idea why. I still don't know what it is to this day. I've got visions of a big bus full of baked beans going down the road, but I'm sure that's <laughs> not what it was. Um, but yeah, they had this this fascinating conversation and they shook hands at the end of it because it was before coronavirus, obviously. Mm-hmm. And um and it was it was great, and the feedback it was yeah, these people really know what they're talking about. They're great business, and it was like I oh, bet you didn't win the bid. So, so we know about the automation, but there was bits that bits that they were, uh, we got picked to the post on. So yeah. you know, I think it's only growing, and it, it seems to be growing, and it, it's all, it almost feels like. In, and I'm not a big fan of like creepy horror movies, but you know you get that scene where the tentacles go out and they sort of start sort of going further and further and reaching, and their reach gets bigger business
2: automation to me feels very much like that. Yes. Yeah, totally. In the same way, you know, computers will have done and things like this is, you know, yeah, very much, pretty much, so, much yeah. everyone works on mm. a computer, but before you tell, you know, anyone in a trade, they're going to work on a computer and they'd be like, what? <laughs> um, Do you know if some so, still yeah. are? Well, yes, I know, but yeah, it's, um, yeah. Uh, even those, you know, if you're out in the field, you know, your phone is, you know, snapping photos mm. of receipts and- Oh yeah, absolutely. I
1: mean, we use Receipt Bank for the capturing receipts because it's integrated into Zero, um, and it works really well. I mean, the accounts department know when one of the guys has put diesel in the van before I do. And, you know, it doesn't bother me. I don't have an issue with that because the right controls are in place and it works really well. But going back to that previous role I had where we used OneServe, that, that did exactly that. It was a resource management tool. So people got sent the job. It had their sat nav, so it told them how, exactly how to get to the job. It yeah, had the project. You could upload photos. You could look at photos of any previous work that had been done. Just the power of that software. I mean, there's other people that are in that market. There's another business called Big Change. There's a couple of others that do sort of like resource management out in the remote field. But essentially, if you've got a modern smartphone in your hand, that's more powerful than than any kind of computer these days because it's at the point where it's at the point of service delivery.
2: Yeah. And this is what people forget, is it, they think automation is going to kill jobs, but it just allows you to concentrate on the job, actually, mm. and all the admin, you know. Uh, yep. Remember when we used to print out maps before driving somewhere? Oh, so that we'd have, like, Hilarious, how much time yeah. and paper everyone wasted printing yeah. out Google Maps. Like, but they were never optimized
1: something. to print properly. So if you did AA Route planning, you've got 14 pages to go from like Birmingham to Manchester, which is about three motorways.
2: Yeah, exactly. You could
1: write it on so, the back of a post-it note. But if you did route planning, you got 14 pages of waste paper. And, and it was also like inkjet printers. So it was about sort of enough ink to write, I don't know, 6,000 letters. And it was just, <laughs> once you'd got there, it was crap.
2: You'd throw it in the bin and you never use it again. Yeah, so, exactly. It won't go that way again. Hit load of traffic. Yeah,
1: so, so there's tremendous value in, in the kind of, so, so is that something you get involved in? Or your stuffies are solely about actually automating the actual sort of almost like a production line, I guess, isn't it?
2: Yeah, but I mean, that's that's the bit of automation in industrial automation I'm really passionate about is, you know, a lot of people think it's robots and the robots are going to replace a human. So you buy a robot, there's a human gone. No, to me, um, it's all about in the humans, we've got lots of, in us humans, <laughs> I should say, um, you know, we've got lots of experience, lots of expertise. We can see context, we can make decisions based on, you know, the data we've got available and the context and the history, etc., very quickly. And, um, you know... It's going to be a long, long time if they ever do get there that um, machines are going to be able to do it as well as we can. So for me, it's about equipping people to better serve and better, you know, better, better build the business essentially. So get people off things like moving, you know, boxes from position A to position mm. B with a pallet truck, and get people onto you know, okay, well, let's zoom out, look at the whole warehouse setup. How can we optimize this? And it's going to take a few people to brainstorm with all the information about, you know, how long the different things take, uh, where things need to be for what duration in what shape and things. And it's, to me, it's about empowering people. Um, You know, we don't need a man, you know, a supervisor up in the top office with a, with an Excel spreadsheet. Now, everyone's got all the data to make decisions on their phones. Mm. So that's the bit that, I get really passionate about is you know there's often a bit of reluctance to embrace some of this stuff but you know the opportunities when you do are just so huge and everyone does benefit even if they uh you know might have to shuffle around between companies a little bit before they find their niche um because at the end of the day there are people that you know their job at the moment is to move x to you know from me mm. to, to c or whatever efficient logistics
1: it's massive i mean it's we have the same in construction i'll never forget being on a project and there was there was a project that I was involved in that was a bit distressed. Um, and that was why I was asked to get involved in it. It was a bit of a, bit of a nightmare and there was no consideration to vertical or horizontal sort of distribution of materials. And it was, it was scary, some of the shit that was going on. It was just like, actually, really? Have you guys even seriously thought about this? And we recently went through and looked at some GoPro footage of some um, resin repairs we've done. So we looked at some time-lapse footage from a job. And we just took like a couple of days, like excerpts from a couple of days to look at actually could we do anything more efficiently and it was it was absolutely staggering the amount of time somebody turns around to pick something up turns around to put something down the amount of time someone spends looking for a special tool mm. and actually just sitting looking at that footage I was like wow there's some massive gains that we can have out of this and that's something that's And I'm not downplaying what we do because what we do does add tremendous value to our clients buildings and that's why they like That's why they appreciate what we do, but it's repairs of buildings. You know, it's not particularly complex. It's certainly not as complicated as producing like 100 million toilet rolls or 6,000 jars of coffee. But even in what we do, there's a real-world example of actually just sitting back and taking a little bit of time and looking at something. There's ways that you can make that more efficient. I mean, I was talking to a bricklayer a couple of weeks ago um, on social media, and he actually he did something not dissimilar. Um, he filmed himself laying bricks and he's now changed his whole, whole set up on site, he's leaving site an hour earlier, he's not bending and twisting half as much and he's laying 100 plus more bricks a day mm. well, what an absolutely fantastic outcome not just for, for his health but for his well-being, for, for his career, for, like, you know he, like he said, I want to still be able to pick my kids up when I'm 60, you know, not be like hunched over like my daddy's and like my back's buckled so, you know, automation and the opportunities that that it presents, you know, they exist in any industry. You've just got to be prepared to look at them and be open and honest about actually what could you do better. So the question that I would ask you then is that in the environment where you work and you automate stuff, and like we we've, we've sort of touched on that robots and stuff, do you think the automation makes it a safer environment or do you think people maybe become a little bit complacent because the system's got it, it's fine?
2: It's a great question. And I think, you know, I think it comes back to the fact that how you consider the automation. And, you know, I say it's the same as a hand tool or any, any other tool that people use. Um, it's it's not the automation that's not gonna just it's not gonna be our saviour and it's not coming to destroy us. How we choose to implement it is gonna determine it. So, you know, if you implement automation badly, it's potentially gonna be dangerous. Mm. Likewise if you consider things properly and plan out. Um, you know, then you can make things a lot safer. It's certainly, gonna, it's certainly already removing, you know, millions of people probably from hazardous environments and workplaces that were never really suited to, 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 to humans being there, but we've had the relevant PPE or protection mm. measures in place. Um, and that's one way it can really drive down cost. Uh, but at the same time, like you say, you see, you see bad examples all the time. You see these big industrial accidents. Remember Brunsfield on the, yep. um, on the M1? Yeah, it's like not far from us at Hemel, that. that's massive, exactly. that's like, felt miles away. What went wrong? You know, all the protectionary measures were there, but humans just overrode them, slash didn't see alarms, slash, it's always a catalogue of measures. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, highly automated systems, mm. um, but we still have problems. So
1: it's always... a lorry driver to... looking in his truck, wasn't it, with, with remote control, yeah, rather exactly. than putting the key in.
2: Yeah, so there's procedures in place and there's you know, monitoring systems to monitor what he's up to. But.
1: I'll never forget, I remember that. A, for two reasons, A, because it's quite close to home, but B, we were doing a job for, um, for a big, big landowner and the building has ironically just been flattened to make way of some flats, so I can talk about it now and there's no <laughs> issue with um, anybody pulling me over it, so I will disclose it, but we did, about, we did a job, for, job and it was about a mile, it was at the other end of Maylands Avenue. Hemel Hempstead for anybody who knows it um and it was called Viking House and we did we re-rendered panels on the outside we refurbished all the windows we decorated it fully scaffolded um it was a big quite a decent sized job it was a quarter million quid at the time you know Kenyans was like a 10-15 million pound business it it wasn't a massive job but in terms of my business now it would be um and we so on our contracts we have like start the job you get it finished that's practical completion 12 months after practical completion is the end of defects you do an inspection anything that's like defective with your work you put right and you get paid your last moiety of retention which is normally about two and a half percent so it's a sizable sum of money you know there's enough money there to to warrant you going back two weeks before the end of our defects period buntsfield happened So for for about six or eight weeks, we weren't allowed to go to site and do do the end of defects inspection, which, to be honest, didn't really bother us because, you know, we were all double busy anyway. Anyway, about sort of four weeks later, we get this letter from the client saying that um, they've got some issues with the building uh, and the way that the windows were overhauled. And they'd like to talk to us about it on site. Well, basically, the blast from Bunsfield had caused no end of damage to these windows. And it was quite apparent what had happened. Um, and they, they thought that they were going to have a chat with us about maybe we'd like to make a contribution to sort of them out. <laughs> <laughs> but you cheeky buggers. And, you know, it was like, what will people not try to sort of hang their hat on to get out of paying the bill? Wow. But also, I guess automation is like anything, isn't it? I mean, I'll never forget watching, a do- I think there's a documentary, um, and I only saw part of it about the how automated some of these big, like, parcel factories are. It wasn't a documentary, I'll tell you what it was. It was a Ken Loach film and it's called Sorry We Missed You and it's about the life and if you've never seen it, I would urge you to watch it mm. and anybody anybody that buys a load of shit on Amazon like we do um, and like most people do, this is why their share price went up or their value went up over lockdown. Um, it's about the life of a, of a parcel delivery driver, a motor job delivery driver. Okay. And the inner workings of them places is just absolutely staggering just how automated and how optimized their storage is. So, They've got stuff that's like probably 80, 90 foot in the air. Well, you'd never get that with, like a, hand, with a normal forklift and a normal guy in there because you wouldn't, it just wouldn't be practical. So it's no wonder that we're seeing more of these kind of like big mega warehouses being built because the more those kind of automated systems can run, I guess, you know, more that they can fill every square inch of space almost
2: yeah exactly and i've, I've had i've been looking enough to a tour of a few Amazon facilities and that i just wasn't expecting them to be as vertical as they are mm. you're right you know they have to be close to population centers so the land is pretty expensive land that they're using and yeah. they've just got to be as dense as possible so everything goes up a lot more than you ever imagine. Uh, yeah it's nuts
1: that that how quickly they can get from from you clicking on your screen to that being dispatched is just staggering mm. it's and i'll never forget probably probably 10 years ago now um I was doing social housing kitchens and bathrooms and the client I was working with went we we had a nominated kitchen contract the kitchen supplier and the client was getting a really bum deal and we had a chat with some people some alternative suppliers we put a proposal to the client they said well let's go and look at some of these factories and we went to one and it was like (laughs) it was almost like two geezers in a field (laughs) knocking out kitchens it was shocking and you walk past and We walked past this mock up, and they were like, Yeah, don't look at that. they shit. That's for students. And we were like, OK. Well, can we have a look around the rest of the factory? And Black was like, Yeah, this is it. OK. <laughs> and we went up, to, we went to another one up north, and we did this over sort of two days. And it was, it was me and uh, one of the contract managers, it was one of my direct reports. Um, and we had two people from the client, and we went around four factories no, three factories. And because um, one of them, the incumbent supplier declines to, um, to afford us the opportunity for a discussion because I think they just thought that they were gonna sort of just carry on. And we went to, went to um, one of the other suppliers up north and that was like a whole different game. I mean, it was nothing like Amazon, don't get me wrong. This was not, not a heavily automated business, but it, it was automated to a degree. Um, but they've clearly got everything absolutely ticked off, even down to the point they've got their own truck wash with cameras in it. And it's weird the things you remember. And I said to the guy, I'm not being funny, but what's the reason for, for having your own truck wash? Because as we'd come off the motorway, there was like a massive truck wash, like a mile away. And this, this thing they'd got in their, in their site, which admittedly their site was massive, but they could have made better use of the space. And he said, it's really simple. He said, every set of boxes, when the wagon and drag comes back, goes through that. And it's not because we want it to look clean, but we do, because we could do that down the road. It's about managing our quality. And the fact that it goes through that, when it comes out the other end, we open the back door of the box to make sure it's dry. Because obviously it's going to be like storing kitchen carcasses and stuff for probably sort of two weeks. If it's leaking, that's you know, potentially a couple of hundred thousand pounds of stock in there. Mm. And it really struck me as a business that actually thought about actually what do we need to do, not just to make sure that our product is manufactured well, but how it actually gets to site because we've all had experiences in like automated processing systems where stuff comes out and it's got fragile on it and it's a gift for someone, it comes out and it's smashed them smithereens, and smithereens. It's like, really? Yeah. But I guess kind of the more businesses sort of get better at sort of business and stock movement without like automatically, the less, you, you know, because those kinds of systems don't typically go wrong or, or typically go far wrong, go wrong far less I would imagine then Bob with the forklift who's got a hangover because England won the football the night before or or the hockey or, the, or whatever sport he might Bob might watch or, or or Bobette or whatever they're called let's not be let's not be sexist um but is there is are there any statistics about actually the the, the reduced instances of those of any sort of issues along those kind of lines by taking the person out
2: yeah, I mean, it really depends on the on the process, of course. Um, so, I mean, I haven't got any to hand because generally we're working pretty tightly with the customer by that point. Wow. And, you know, it really is dependent on their, um, on their um, process. But, mm. you know, quality is a huge driver. Um, and not just, you know, it's a bit like your kitchen example, but controlling your supply chain as well. So one thing a lot of manufacturers don't have much control over at the moment is, okay, they've got a product, great, they've shipped it. The customer complains, or before it's got to the customer, there's a there's a quality issue. Maybe often there's just no traceability of where the input materials came from that made that product, because maybe mm. they've got several suppliers of raw materials or what have you, and that sort of traceability um, is huge in some markets like pharmaceuticals. Of course, you've got to be onto that, um, but in other places there's just it's just non-existent. Um, and uh, you know, actually, I've been talking to someone recently who's in the um, meat trade. Um, so pork products in the UK. Okay. Um, actually, individual pigs aren't tracked, but batches, lorry loads of pigs mm. are. So, you know, there's a lot more that can be done even there with the food chain where you'd think it would be quite highly uh, kind of traced um, to, wow. to, to the resolution of the tracing. So, so, so individual pigs are not tracked, but my understanding is cows and sheep are though, aren't they? Well, so the farm that it came from is yep. but the individual sheep. So what you, can, what you know is, you know, this came from this farm right but, you know it's it's individual journey if you like is, is is not known and that sort of information can be can be golden mm. because you know you don't know you know what, the quality the amount of meat you've got off that carcass that that mm. sort of it's is not oh there's a whole world, a whole world so of you the that you can start yeah. looking to and of course that. the quality issue so yeah there's there's a lot of opportunities there and it's 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 often a big driver for what we do
1: I can imagine. I mean, that whole. I mean, it's not something I know a lot about. But my wife's godmother's. Um, the she was chair. I don't know if she still is of the Royal Livery Company of Butchers and Drivers. Oh, okay. Like, yeah. Seriously, like, highly regarded in the meat industry, um, and she's now um, buying director, I think, for Ocado. Um So yeah, what she doesn't know about that sort of industry, and it's quite fascinating actually, because one of the things that that I've heard, not just from her, but some of my my one of my my mum's family. Um, uh, quite a few of the guys in that side of the family used to work for Rank Xerox, delivering and mm-hmm. installing and commissioning photocopiers and servicing them. Um, but primarily concerned with like the delivery and the install. Um, and they always used to say, in the one thing that they always used to agree on, was that the cleanest environments were always pet food places, far more mm-hmm. than food that was for human consumption. Wow. And I was always I was always astonished at, at, at just why that would be the case. But it just, it, apparently it just is. It's, it's quite, quite widely accepted that that, that is the case. I'm just, what's your experience of kind of hygiene in these sorts of places that you're going into? I mean, you talked earlier about sort of crawling around in the dirt. and mm. <coughs> I don't imagine that modern day factories, even before COVID-19, but I would imagine now they must be absolute shit shape and Bristol fashion, aren't they? Because, because of sanitation and stuff.
2: Uh, It depends on the product as well and how how they're managed. You know, uh, some places are absolutely spotless. Um, Other places, if they're generating power or, like I said, the tissue manufacture process generates a lot of dust. There's a lot of water involved. Um, So by its nature, you know, they have... uh, you know there's a machine probably bigger than a football pitch and um you know at one end it's the wet end and there's a lot of water and at the other end is the dry end where you've got you know dry tissue paper and then somewhere in, in between that process you've got all that water going somewhere you've got all the dust and things that is generated by the, the drying process okay. so there's quite a lot involved in that one and then you know generally these industrial environments uh you you know if you're if you're generating power people are doing that in pretty pretty amazing ways these days they're burning rubbish they're burning hay bales they're burning all sorts of things um Mm. and you know that those processes they they, you know just the inputs so getting deliveries of wood pellets or getting Mm. deliveries of rubbish um all that stuff it's got to go somewhere so yeah and i suppose that generates quite a lot of dirt
1: and dust doesn't it those kind of the the raw materials if you like it's um
2: yeah, that's often the the, the the challenge is is kind of handling all that and automating the processing mm. of it without. Yeah, so yeah, they're not always the cleanest, but it's the nature of the beast a little bit. And generally, where they need to be clean, they're kept pretty spotless. Um, kind of the finishing end.
1: Mm. Like. So where do you see the future for automation? I've got to say, Richard, that to start of this conversation, I was like, I'm not sure how interesting this is going to be, but I'm absolutely fascinated because. You must get to see some absolutely amazing—the inside of some amazing places. That I mean, okay, I know there's there's TV programs about kind of like amazing, like the chairman goes for a day behind the scenes, and but I'm not convinced that you ever really get to see the full picture. But you must see what's all what really goes on in some pretty spectacular businesses.
2: Uh, yeah, and that's that's um, yeah, one part of the job I really enjoy, of course. But yeah, I can't remember your question now. A question.
1: If you had to pick one, what would your favorite be?
2: What, my favourite, like... Your favourite kind of, like, plant? Oof. I don't know. I think, um, you know, the power generation for me is is pretty fascinating because this is, it's kind of a cop-out because there's quite a lot of different types there. Um, so just seeing the various mechanisms um, and the economics of it as well, you know, um, we're getting into storage now and things like that. Um, so the, the, it pays people to consume electricity, store it for a few hours, and then give it away to people again and you know the economics of that I find you know pretty, pretty well you know, that's just blowing my mind sorry what, what do they do they use electricity. electricity so you're familiar with the idea of economy seven electricity yeah. yeah, yeah. home. so electricity is cheaper at night mm-hmm. than in the day when everyone's getting things going away um, and you've heard of battery storage and people combine battery storage with solar or wind yes. energy yeah, because yeah. It's, it's seasonal um, but you know we've got a lot of batteries going in in the UK at the moment because it's actually it's, because of the way the markets go and because of the way kind of energy is priced, it pays people to con- you know consume energy and essentially charge a battery overnight and then sell that energy in the day when the price is higher.
1: So the, so that battery gets discharged back into the grid.
2: Yeah, exactly. So they're taking okay. from the grid and then yeah. putting back at a different time. Um, have you ever seen the your, the huge uh, reservoir in? Um, uh in snowdonia north wales i've seen I've, I've never been there but i've seen
1: pictures of it certainly so
2: that place is immense and they're doing exactly the same thing except that you know they're pumping however many gallons of water i've tried to think how much and um you know that's been going for decades in um, that place
1: see i find that whole thing fascinating the whole water and power because and some of the people in our mastermind are sort of trade so they'll sort of i think this will sort of resonate with them but for me the sort of the fact electricity and water just just two things you just do not mix because it's just <laughs> catastrophic. And, and I, I had a call yesterday from a guy that, that I talked to quite a lot on LinkedIn. We've never met, but we have quite a lot of banter. And he's a really nice guy. He's an old guy he's a really, really big hit in project manager or project director, I think is. And he was talking about a project abroad. Um, it's a data center. And actually they're using, I think, essentially what they're doing is the, because it's, it generates so much heat, they're actually putting that heat out of the data center and cooling it in some giant reservoir. Mm, Yeah, yeah. And it's like, wow, it's some of these big super projects and um, the tech that sits behind them is absolutely fascinating.
2: Oh yeah, exactly. And once you get into kind of energy, it it does get really fascinating because there's so many like opportunities to be more efficient with it. Mm. You know, heating stuff up and cooling stuff down is one of the most energy intensive things. So if you can put a data center next to, um, you know, a housing estate that needs heating, um, mm. or even a swimming pool that needs heating, um, you know, uh, you'd be surprised just in a hotel how much you can be efficient with, you know, excess heat going to from the air conditioning uh, going to to heat the swimming pool and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, so, I suppose if it, I suppose it, it comes down to at what point do you make that decision? If it's made when you're when you're moving lines around on a bit of paper and writing a spec, it's relatively easy to do, but. Trying to, trying to sort of integrate that retrospectively is probably, I would imagine, it's probably cost prohibitive. I would have thought, the thought yeah, so because the amount of years time. you'd need to sort of have that on board and running efficiently would be far longer than potentially maybe the lifespan of the building or the purpose of oh, or, or even maybe just the lease, you know, because some of these buildings are leased, aren't they?
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's quite an interesting, you know, where the cycle we are in the UK, you know, we're putting a lot of new power generation assets in at the moment as we're, you know, decommissioning old uh, mm. kind of fossil fuel plants and putting in greener things. So we are, we are actually in a, we've got a good opportunity now to change the way we're doing things a bit, so.
1: Yeah, I'm, I must admit, I remember, I didn't work at Langs very long, but I did. And, and one of my, the sad things, so I never got to work, never got to go and visit. I worked on some, some amazing projects. Um, but they've got a couple of nuclear jobs and I never got to go and visit one and I saw some pictures and I've got a post that I've drafted for next week about actually because they're building a new facility at Hinkley at the moment and they've got the world's mm. biggest crane there. And this thing oh, is like, it's yes. like out of this world this thing it's, It's like, I mean, I, I remember they had it at was um, Court when they were doing some demolition over the top of the rail. And I remember literally get coming out of the tube looking up and seeing this thing. I was like, what on earth? I thought I stepped onto a film set. This thing was massive. And it was like, I can't remember how long. Was, I can't remember how many days. I'm not going to quote figure it because I can't remember. So I'll be guessing. But the, just the time to sort of rig this crane up was absolutely phenomenal. And I think the ballast on the back of it is like 40, 40 foot containers or something. It's like, the size of it is just absolutely gargantuan. And it's, mm. you can see that there's some big heavyweight money being put into kind of like the next generation of where our power is going to come from. But yeah. the one thing that I was talking to the guy about, and it was only a short conversation yesterday, was actually the amount of the more data centers we're going to need. And presumably that's something that's pretty fundamental to you is actually because you need, you need to look at what data these systems produce to be able to work out where the where best place to sort of make changes, do you? Presumably, the ongoing storage of data is a, is a really valuable asset,
2: isn't it? Yeah, well, this is it. And this is now the next kind of thing. It's, it's huge. And people have been doing it in business systems for a, long, uh, a bit longer than industrial systems. But already, you know, there's years' worth of historical data. People are storing in data lakes or, you know, whatever you want to call it, the cloud. Essentially, it's server computers somewhere, isn't it? Mm. Um, and, you know, the, the amount of data we, um, we produce and store uh, is only going to increase. And its value is, 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 is huge. But the um, the challenge with that at the moment is you need quite a lot of historical data to run algorithms on, so the machine learning algorithms can learn the trends and mm. see see the opportunities for improvement. So you need this big data set before you see any return. So there's quite a lot of upfront cost for some uh, some businesses, yeah, and that's I mean. where all these cloud data centers, you know, the um, the Amazons, Microsofts, and Googles of this world are sort of kind of renting space to people fairly cheap on the on the surface. But I. You know, I try to think how much some people are paying in subscriptions to keep all their data. It's um, it's pretty. No, it's
1: not. It is. It's, it's scary. I mean, we're a tiny little SME, and it, and we are paying, and it's it was, it was, quite staggering because I literally, I mean, we've got a guy that does ours, and we've got a really good setup, um, and he he rang me about probably about six seven weeks ago, maybe a little bit longer, and said, "Rich, I think there's something wrong." He said, "Your data has jumped." By 14 gig in a day, he said, "What? Well, I think that, can I jump on your machine and have a look?" And I was like, "You've got remote access. You so just do it." But he's he's got, got really really high integrity, and he wouldn't ever just do it. He wanted blood like, permission to do it. And um, it transpired that we just downloaded f- four media cards for the drone footage. <laughs> That's all it <laughs> was. Literally, we've been out filmed four jobs that we were bidding for over the course of three or four days, not put. We'd strip the, strip the assets onto um, – like I'd, I'd put some on my phone. Some of the guys had got them on their phones um, just for sort of like social media stuff, but we'd not put them onto our actual sort of like OneDrive server. So mm. we literally – I just sat there and banged the whole lot on, so we'd got that got that sort of that data security, and we knew exactly where it was. Um, but he was like, yeah, we need to have a rethink. And, I mean, we're paying about 250 quid a month just for like backup data storage. Well, if we're paying that as a small – SME building contractor, geez, I dread to feel. I mean, I don't, the economies of scale are massive, I'm sure, but, and we're probably not somebody that's ever going to purchase our own data center. Not unless you call two servers in a shared data center. I like the idea of a data lake, though. That sounds, can we have a data swimming pool? What's a data lake?
2: A data lake? Well, it's just a big database, essentially. So, this idea that, you know, think about your own business. You've got all these all these cloud based tools now, they're all storing data. Um, Mm. And, you know, as a common pool, you've got all this data, it might not be accessible in one place, but there's um, so you know, that's a big piece of work for a lot of companies now is, you know, okay, so we've got, you know, the accounting software's got this amount of data, you know, the production Mm. software's got this amount of data and getting that on a common platform and running analysis on it. You know, if we're looking at a power station, say how much they generate depends on the ambient temperature in a lot of these processes. So you can trend the weather against the production of the plant, against the quality of the input materials, and you know, and you can start to trend and predict the performance of the plant through the year. Um, because say if you're burning, you know, wood or hay bales or whatever it would Mm. be, you know, it's going to be drier at different times of the year. Yeah, of course it is, yeah. All that stuff. And you can start to really get clever about predicting and forecasting. Um, and that's just the tip of the iceberg, of course. Um, you know, if if England have played on the Sunday, as you've suggested. You know, is the morale of your workforce lower on a Monday morning in August or whatever? And you can start to really chip into you know some of the some of the impacts on your business and how you can affect them. So, I mean, that yeah.
1: that's the impacts of that are really are really being felt at grassroots level. I mean I've got a couple of people in my social media network that are in the tree surgery business, um, and one of them I've got to far to call a friend. We get on extremely well. Um, we always like work together when we can. Um, he's just an all-round really lovely guy um and he they've they're now in a situation where they're actually selling their wood chip on for people to actually use to generate electricity and for them that's like game changing because some of the kit that they're spending money on you know it's like 20 10 20 30 40 50 60, pounds and upwards and these guys are sort of small very small businesses with maybe like two or three staff and what it's doing is is having that kind of additional income stream is allowing them to invest more back into their businesses. So they're not all like swanning around in Range Rovers and stuff. They're they're going out buying new bits of kit, new plants to make them more efficient. But that's what they've they've sort of said is, you know, that the price for that stuff fluctuates tremendously depending Mm. on who you sell to. And so presumably then... If you've got that level of data and you know where that product has come from you know whether that stuff has been stored outside or because it's not kept around very long is it it's almost like comes off the lorry i mean i think they use like those walking floor lorries don't they so they take it tip it i don't think it's stored it's not like it's put for a kiln to dry it before they burn it is it
2: no no well it depends on the plant but yeah a recent example i've been to you know literally it comes off the lorry and potentially within hours it's it's you know it's it's burnt its energy so yeah it it can be really impactful and again to keep the the kind of footprint of the plants small to keep the costs down of the actual capex projects and the operating costs if you can avoid things like you know expensive pre-processing like you know um cutting things down making sure all the particles are the same size and Mm -hmm. things like that um then then people do um so you get a lot of variance in the input materials and then again the control system's job is to manage that because that controls you know literally the calories in the input material the output of the plant and you're balancing quite a varied <laughs> input to try and sustain you know whatever output uh power you're the, the power calories your of the
1: input materials talk to me that's a measure is. and a half that is isn't it i mean i'm thinking about it's like it's quarter to five no quarter past. what i'm thinking calories that's my i say you're thinking you're talking about calories in input material going into a plant is that so is that is that a measure is that what you used to measure it
2: well, you know, when you look at the back of a Mars bar and it says, I don't know how many calories in a Mars bar. Yeah, or kilojoules or whatever it says. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's literally the amount of energy you'd get if you burnt the thing, right? Hmm. Um, so, you know, if, you, if you're generating power from burning wood, it's the same thing. Some wood is, is kind of more energy dense than other wood. Uh, think about, you know, you've just ripped out a hmm. kitchen. It's made of old fiberboard and a load of yeah, glue yeah. and stuff. That's going to maybe put out a lot less energy than some nice high-quality hardwood. Um, you know,
1: okay. sort of or yeah, and the hardware burns a lot slower as well, doesn't
2: it? Well, yeah, that's true. Yeah. So yeah, massive have got difference. all these sort of variances in the input material. And that's just from one one what you'd call one material is recycled mm-hmm. wood. Yeah. but you've got quite a lot of yeah, variance in it. I mean
1: so, the burn time is staggering. I mean, we did a job a couple of years ago, we replaced the 144 fire doors, or they weren't fire doors, we installed the new fire doors. Um, and we had them machined on. We'd set up a workshop and we made them on site to fit the openings. Mm. And um, so we were buying like literally solid hardwood. I think it was a coil we used um, from memory. Um, and all of the offcuts, rather than throw them away, we couldn't do a lot with them. Um, so I actually brought them home and we actually burnt them on a log burner. And it oh. was it was absolutely astonishing that the piece of hardwood. And we actually in the end I timed it and it it took four times longer. For, for the same size cube of hardwood to burn as it did for a cube of sort of normal sort of like four by two softwood. Yeah. It was astonishing the I amount of time the, the amount, and it seemed to give out a lot more heat. I mean we didn't try and measure that. when I mean, the temperature was higher. Um mm. but the actual it felt like it was actually putting out a lot more heat as well. I don't remember it did, but yeah it was fascinating. So I'm sure there must be an all oh, there must be some pretty sexy graphs on some of these machines that you look at to to manage all of those variables of, of what did you call it input material
2: oh well, i call it that yeah i don't know what the, um, yeah, the people who know the process properly would call it but um yeah like say i'm the technology guy they tell me how to implement it because they've got better knowledge of the process but um yeah i call it input material just because it's a generic term for anything could be you know raw chemicals to make pharmaceuticals or it could be um you
1: know right. So it's just it's a generic term that you use that fits. because yes. it fits in that box quite me, well. Me being time. lazy,
2: basically, with my language.
1: Right. <laughs> so, what does the rest of twenty twenty look like? I mean, we've still got what three, turn a bit three months left, three and a half months left. So, what's the rest of? Because it's not been the best of years for a lot of people, is it? I think it hasn't. Pro. Projects canned and stuff. So,
2: and yeah, I think for me, it's it's you know. I haven't got, um, I don't think any clients that have gone out of business, but I have had clients that have completely paused or shut down their operations. Many are still operating below peak capacity. Um, you know, and you know, the, the The damaging thing for my business is you know we've had this period now where no decisions have been made because people have been waiting waiting to see what happens, mm-hmm. waiting to see if you know the, 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 they're burning through the cash as fast as they feared or if they're retaining it as as well as they thought they might be able to, and all this sort of thing and you know markets are changing uh, which is huge, so there's a big impact in, in in the kind of on the projects that we typically do um and the service business um because that's probably. Maybe half of my my work is kind of service, keeping things running rather than new projects. Um, that will carry on um, to a certain degree. But again, if people have got in-house capability and things, they'll be, um, they'll be potentially doing or looking to do a bit for themselves. So for the rest of the year, I'm good. We've had a pretty good year touching a lot of wood as far as, um, Input as, as, far material. as keeping our... <laughs> good idea um yeah I'll, I'll i'll keep some input material handy from the meeting, <laughs> but um yeah um but next year because of this lack of decision making and things you know it we, I kind of everything in our pipeline has, has been put on hold so that's um that's going to be my challenge for the rest of the year really is uh, is really getting to to know what's uh, what's actually coming down the line and what's um, what's going to stay stuck for a little bit longer
1: and how are you, I think a good question to maybe wrap things up on would be one of the things that we've sort of shared quite a lot about in some of the mastermind sessions and sort of training we've done is sort of power of social media and actually reaching out to people, to potential new prospects. How are you finding that for, you, for yourself, for your personal brand and also for your business? Is that working for you? Uh,
2: it is. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not the most consistent, as you know, Richard. But um, yeah, I think generally I've had a really good response and I think, you know, automation um is 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 moving from being a dirty word a little bit um there's a lot of buzzwords around in my industry as there are in most um but generally if you if you can cut through the um uh you you know the the buzzwords and the and and just get past that initial fluffy fluffy word stage into the real meat um then i'm finding people really quite receptive um i think my message as far as you know actually it's 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 not all about the Wizzy technology. That's the tool to do the job. You may or may not need the tool, mm. um, depending on your application. I think that's that's ringing a bit truer for people now. Um, before they before they were like the decision is oh should we automate or not. Now the decision uh, since since the COVID lockdown and what have you is a bit more like right we need to automate. Um, but how do we do it? Um, mm. Is the discussion I'm starting to have. So. Yeah, and the bigger customers that were already fully automated or highly automated, um, you know, that their, their, their pressures remain really. Uh, it's, it's almost like they've got, they've got a. It's, it's not like a normal recession, if I can say that, because we've got the kind of additional people uh, problem that you don't get when just money dries up. Mm. But um, I think you know, there's, there's 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 some big challenges for everyone. I think coming into the next year, isn't there? So um, I think so. I think the people that are
1: going to be the best place are the people that people will remember as being the go-to person for, for whatever that, the products or services they provide. And one of the things that's quite apparent from sort of seeing your and watching your sort of social media journey is that, that you're kind of, you're, you've almost sort of developed a kind of a bit of, a, a, bit of a, a more authentic brand voice about you and who you are and actually what you personally, Richard Banyard, bring to, to Optech and what Optech provide. Um, Mm. it's, it's almost like you, you, you seem to have sort of successfully managed to actually make automation interesting for people that automation is not, it's not their industry. It's not something they're actually involved in. Um, it's not something they know a lot about, but actually you've made it almost an interesting subject and and you've made it more, more engaging for people. I think have you found that you've had much sort of feedback from people outside of what you would be your typical customer?
2: Oh, certainly. And that's one, one reason I'm finding it hard to read how successful I'm being is because, you know, um, I, I'm finding my message is quite, you know, I what I speak, I use quite generic terms or I try to, uh, I'm pro- you'll probably laugh at that because probably it's more bingo and um, buzzwords, but, you Makes know, a lot of the principles, today. you know, a lot of the principles that I apply to my using technology are principles that you can apply to a business at a, a management level or, you know, even your personal life, I guess, you know, you've, you've got to control what you can control um and and, and know what you can't mm. uh, leave that alone and i think automation's that that thing you know it's it's just a tool to allow you to do things um if 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 you think of it as this big beast uh, that can either help or hinder you uh that's not a useful thing it's um so i don't know um, maybe my message is is just as muddled as this statement but i think generally um my message gets through and uh, yeah, if nothing else, I'll share a few nice pictures
1: again. If I uh, yeah, it see seems to. So, so I've got one last question, and it's a massive curveball, but it's really appropriate, and I've got to ask it. So, growing up, one of one of the films that I quite liked was Top Gun, um, and Days of Thunder, and I can't remember which one. It's in. I think it's actually. In fact, no, it's not true. I can. It's in Days of Thunder, um, and there's a there's a conversation with Tom Cruise, who plays a racing car driver. Um, who's a bit out of control, and um, his girlfriend, I think it is, says to him, what is it about what you do? And he says, it's the feeling of being in control. And she dispels that completely with the statement that actually, I won't use the exact terminology, but uh, you're a bit of a wally um, because control is just an absolute illusion. No one's in control. There's no such thing as control. It only exists in your headspace. So given somebody that
2: does what you do, how does that statement ring true with you? Oh, I think that's that's really great, actually. Um, it will stump me for a second, though, won't it? <laughs> I think, you know, what what we say about our, our stuff is it's all about, it, at the end of the day, um, my job is to get the right data to the right person at the right time so they can make a data-based decision, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's all we can do. Um, yes, there's going to be stuff that come and hits us. We all know that this year, don't we? But, you know, if, if you've got as much information about what you're doing, you know, what you can control and what affects you, uh, then surely you're in a better place than if you didn't. And I think, um, yeah, we're certainly not in control of our, uh, of our destinies to, to the extent of um, external factors, no. uh, but we certainly are in how we respond to them. And being equipped with all the data is, uh, is going to allow you to do that to the best of your abilities.
1: I couldn't agree more. I mean, that whole thing about automation, I mean, that goes right away into sort of automation of business and your accounts and all sorts of, especially when, you know, curveballs like Corona sort of come along and to be able to actually know where you are financially within a matter of minutes because you've got automated books and everything's done is the power of that is huge. And I guess it's the same for people that are running these massive plants when all of a sudden toilet roll demand goes up massively. It's about just having control and having that information to be able to make educated and informed decisions, isn't it?
2: that's exactly
1: it yeah yeah cool well i've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation far more than i ever thought i were talking about automation um okay. i've actually found, found it fascinating yeah massively <laughs> and actually it's good to actually talk to you and put the human side into actually what you do because i think that's really important at the end of the day that's your customers are human beings aren't they and that being able to yeah. actually sit and have that conversation with them that's where you can add the real value is looking at what they do and actually how you can actually make it work better and run, run better and get a better outcome from. So thank you ever so much
2: for your time. No, thank you.
1: So if people want to reach out and connect with you, whether it's because they want to talk to you about career and Daniels on bikes with only one gear or whether it's because they want to talk to you about automation. um, I've got your LinkedIn profile and stuff. Is that, is that the best way for people to reach out to you initially, or would you rather they come via your website or?
2: LinkedIn is fine. If you want to go straight to booking a call, you can use the website, but yeah, cool. uh, I'm on LinkedIn uh, almost incessantly, not quite as much as you, but yeah, you are Mr. LinkedIn. <laughs> and it's
1: good to see that the uh, work with Jules is done really well because it's your messaging is uh, really powerful. So once again, thank you ever so much for your time.
2: That's no, been great. Thank you.
0: thanks for listening to the On The Block podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. To find out more about the work that Richard does, please visit his website www.stonecontracts.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave a rating and review on the platform you use to enjoy his show. Thanks for listening and see you soon on The Block.